Hello and welcome to the One Football Premier League podcast. Manchester City make sure the title race is closer than ever. Covid rages through the Arsenal squad. Rafa leaves Goodison Park. Plus plenty more on today's podcast. As joining myself, Matt Froelich, are Joel Sanderson-Murray and Lewis Ambrose. Uh, as you can probably tell, lads, that was a very sarcastic intro. Uh, Lewis, you and me were talking actually on Thursday about this podcast, and you said, I'm not sure we'll want to speak to each other on Monday. And um, here we are, the North London derby wasn't even played, and I'm still not sure I want to talk to you. I'm happy to chat about it, honestly. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let my rage subside, and uh, Joel can be like the special guest referee. Uh, we will get to that shortly, though. Uh, as we begin at the Etihad Stadium where Manchester City edged past Chelsea and prevailing theory dictates that Man City now have more than a hand on the Premier League trophy. Uh, Joel, was the game a typical title-winning match where Man City didn't risk too much and picked their moment to strike? It felt a lot like that Leicester game a few years back when the thought of losing meant a close encounter and it was finally decided by that screamer from Vincent Company. Yeah, it's interesting that you referred to that game because that's kind of like how I felt watching the game because I remember exactly how I felt watching the City Leicester game that you're talking about where as the minutes sort of ticked by you get a little bit of hope by each pass the second that City might drop points and maybe you know Leicester could have nicked something and in this case Chelsea could have nicked something and then um, and then yeah it's an absolute worldie by Kevin De Bruyne which decides the game doesn't it but yeah it did it did feel like that, and, and City can afford to sort of play like that in, in in those games anyway, because you know it's it's more it was more important for Chelsea to win that game than Man City were because of the gap that Man City have at the moment, and and they they could play sort of a bit risk averse, which which they do majority of the time anyway, where they control possession and make sure they don't give up too much space to the opponents, and and they did it, and, and in hindsight, we look back at the game now, you know Chelsea were never really in it; they had that one chance from Lukaku. Which Edison I think does brilliantly to to deny, and then Ziyech has made you very well in the follow up. But other than that, City were well, were comfortable, I guess. Which has been the, the, sadly the state of play. Speaking as a local fan, the state of play since you know for a fair few months now, and and it looks like when you say more on the hand, I think you know what they may have the trophy parade on Monday because I think it is probably done. No one's catching these, sadly. Yeah, it did feel like it was just a case of not losing. For City, like the onus is on Chelsea and Liverpool now to chase them down. So you can kind of see where Guardiola could afford to be a bit, yeah. I think risk averse is definitely the the right term to use. Um, Lewis, should we sit here and pick apart what challenges Chelsea and Liverpool have done wrong in the title race? Uh, or is it unfair to expect them to rival Manchester City's almost unattainable level of standards and consistency? Yeah, I think that. I think the latter. I think that... City of now it's what four or five years in a row that they're basically winning every single game. Um, I had a look there. Uh, three of the the four highest points tallies after twenty two games in Premier League history have come from three of the last four seasons, uh, and Man City are three of them. So uh, you know, I think you, yeah, you know, you look at they're on course again to probably get towards that 100-point mark, well over 90 points. Uh, the three of us all grew up at a time, I think, when if a team got 90 points in a season, you're ba- that's basically the title guaranteed. And now you have to get right at the high end of 90 points to challenge Manchester City. 
Liverpool again are on track to to get sort of they're, they're well over two points per game. Chelsea are at about two points per game. Like, that should be enough, or not should be. You know, if, if City are better than that, then they're better than that. But historically, that's enough to win the league. And yeah, it's a. It, I don't think we can really have a go at Chelsea and Liverpool for not matching the standard of the team that's picking up more points than any team has ever done in England. Mm. Did, did you feel as well about the game, Lewis? I just want to get your opinion on Lukaku. I feel like he got an unnecessary shitstorm after the game. Maybe it's because of that interview. Maybe it's because of speaking out. But like, I see everyone... I know Tuchel said he needs to do more and you know that's fair enough and he missed a big chance. But it felt like it was Lukaku against De Bruyne. One of them made the right decision to leave Chelsea and Lukaku's an idiot for going back. I just thought he got unnecessary hate. Why do strikers always catch flack when their team gets outplayed? Like, yeah. The striker is the guy at the front of the pitch. If City are keeping the ball, if City are playing the game in Chelsea's half, then logic just sort of dictates, doesn't it, that Lukaku's not going to be very involved and not going to have the chance to have much of an impact. I mean, whenever a striker gets one big chance in a game, and especially a big game and misses it, obviously that's the sort of thing that turns the match. But at the same time, City won this game because they created more than one chance mm. for their players. Uh, you know, Grealish, uh, in particular, had a really great chance towards the end of the first half. And, and that was just saved by Kepa. Like, but that wasn't the only shot that Man City had. And that was the difference between the teams. It wasn't the fact that you know, Lukaku had a chance and didn't score it. Obviously, that would have would have led to a different result. But you can't be asking or expecting your striker to score the one chance that falls to him in an entire 90 minutes. I completely forgot about that Grealish chance, but you're right. That makes that is total no, they, sense that, that like they missed it and no one's talking about it. That was an e- I think that was probably an easier chance than the one. Is it, it's about the same, right? It's yeah. basically the same sort of thing as the Lukaku chance. And yeah, exactly. Because City scored a, a goal later in the game anyway, no one cares that Grealish missed the chance. Yeah. But everyone cares that Lukaku missed one. Yeah, you're right. No, you are right. You're all right. But still, I think I think you got unnecessary hate as well, Lukaku. Uh, right, moving on though from that 1-0 victory and we go to Aston Villa against Manchester United. Joel will be buzzing to talk about Coutinho. Um, I'm very sure, but we'll, <laughs> we'll start on the Manchester United end of things. This one's uh, from Twitter, actually. It's coming from Jimmy Tilsley, who said, please, can someone talk about United and Ragnick sensibly? Uh, for me, he's lost one in eight, conceding six. All seems logical. He's giving players a chance, getting an idea of their ability. And crucially, we've stopped conceding huge amounts of goals. United are not a good football team. So reducing the number of goals we concede gives us more chance of winning games. Um, yet spend five minutes on Twitter and we're a club in a civil war who might never win a game of football again. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this is what you end up with on Twitter, unfortunately. Um, is that a reasonable ask, Lewis? Can we talk sensibly about United with what's going on? I, 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 do, does any of us want to talk sensibly about my United? <laughs> That's the difference. That is the um, difference. Like, I think the problem is, if you talk about them now compared to two months ago, then you, then you have to say, like, that's fair enough. Um, but they've also still lost to Wolves and in, in that time they've drawn with Newcastle in that time so it's not like everything's going well it, one loss in eight obviously but this was a run I, I know I saw a video going around on Twitter again the other day 
after Rangnick was, um, I think it was after his first game, the Champions League game against Young Boys, and it was BT Sport and Rio Ferdinand and Owen Hargreaves sat there and they brought up the next 10 Premier League fixtures and they both sat there and confidently went 30 points. Go on. Getting 30 points, which obviously Jesus. is absolute nonsense. Uh, you know, you can't account for one bad day or one day with an unlucky mm. bounce or something. It's just stupid. But Man United don't look like they're going to get 30 points. They don't look like they're going to get 22 or 23 points from those 10 games. And if you're playing 10 games that you're expecting 30 points from now, that means City and Chelsea and Liverpool and Arsenal and Tottenham are coming further down the line. So if United are going to finish fourth, that's the, the race they're in, then they're going to have to go on a run at the moment, a run that it looks like they're not going on for now. And also, I just think... Man United comfortably finished in the top four last season, signed Varane, Sancho and Cristiano Ronaldo, and now we're being told that it's completely normal and fine that they've gone backwards. Yeah, I'm not sure we can say they're not a good football team because they should be a good football team mm. when they sign those players and they achieved the points certainly did last season. That like Man United, if they finish fourth this season, it probably will be seen as a success considering the context of the campaign. But really, when you look at it as a whole, you look at what they did in the summer, it's it's actually a diabolical disgrace, really, that they've not challenged for the title, and and, and it is. But you know, thank God the Adams. Yeah, I think that's the thing. When you when you bring in these kind of signings, you're basically expecting to go one better. You have to get better, don't you? You can't do yeah. that and then and then say it's like, and you can't spend all this money and time and effort on thirty six year old striker and then say that it's some sort of progressionary transition year. It's like no. The guy's 36 years old. You need to win football matches now because he's only going to get worse. I feel like we're then pointing the finger at Solskjaer and basically saying it's completely him. It, it might not necessarily be completely him, Matt, but it's, it, it, you know, I think my United fans who are listening to this would, you know, would be screaming at us and going as the decision makers in charge of the club who have made football decisions for a long time who probably... You know, haven't got a lot of those right, and I'm wondering was maybe giving Solskjaer the contract he did in the first place, and then giving him a new one last season, and and you know, who knows? We, we obviously we can only go with the information that we've given to us, but we don't know if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is signed, Cristiano Ronaldo, or is even signed Jane Sancho. No one really knows. For a lot of clubs who make these big decisions, you have some idea. But with Manchester United, you, you don't really have too much idea who's actually signed off on them. But it, it points towards a decision-making process, which has been sort of, you know, a bit like another club that I would come on to talk to talk about today in, in Everton, which it's just been sort of really up and down with no sort of strategic straight line thinking about it for, for a long time. So, so then you're saying in the context of the season... Could we then say that maybe Randy's making a bit of an improvement or not? It's so hard because he's the interim as well. And it's mm. like, how much? Because that's what's strange about that appointment in particular for me is even if there is an amount of improvement, he's not supposed to be the manager next season. So you can't say that it's some sort of long-term project even. You can't say, oh, there's like a tiny amount of improvement. And then what, like either he finishes fourth and the season ends up sort of okay or they don't finish fourth and it's a bit of a disaster. And that's sort of all there is to it because you can't, like you've had with, with like the Mikel Arteta discussion at Arsenal the last couple of years and especially the last few months where people say, you know, maybe give a manager time and there's 
growth and there's improvement over time. Rangnick hasn't got any of that. At the end of the season, he won't be the manager anymore. So he has one job, and that's to fin- get the team to finish in the top four. And um, to me right now, they don't look like a team that's going to finish in the top four. Maybe not. Maybe not at this point. Um, but actually, talking of the top four, we'll move to the top six, because this is where I think Steven Gerrard could take this team. Um, I mean, look, I think for me, it's clear that he's going to be a great manager. But how far do you think he's going to take him, Joel, now that they're bringing in the likes of Coutinho? And you can see that they, um, I think it was a, the chairman at Aston Villa was speaking about how much of a pull it is to have Gerrard in charge when it comes to making big signings. Yeah, well, that's the thing with Aston Villa. They, um, you know, we've seen over the past twelve months, maybe eighteen months, that they have got ambitious owners in charge, or you know, and Christian Persler there, you, you man, you're referring to speaking, he, he seems to be a very ambitious man in terms of where they want to take the club, and 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 that's sort of maybe why they've they've gone for Steven Gerrard as manager as well, because I think Dean Smith was was doing an okay job, if not spectacular, but. Um, I think they've got the harbour big ambitions of, of breaking into Europe, and they obviously think they can they can do that with with Gerard. And it's and maybe they'd look at his managerial career so far and see potential. But like you just said, there they, they see his name and and being able to get big players in. And there's absolutely no way I don't think personally that Aston Villa signed Philip Coutinho this January if Steve Gerrard's not the manager. And yeah, it's obviously just using you know his, his contacts essentially, which is you know a lot of clubs do and a lot of managers do and. And, and and that could prove to be a, you know a, a masterstroke of a signing if if Coutinho can show even like seventy five percent of what he did at Liverpool. But in terms of, sort of how far I can see him Gerard taking Villa, and it's it, it's tough one in terms of you know I, I don't think they're going to be anywhere near top four. Definitely not this season. Maybe not even next season. But I think if you're looking at top six, there's a lot of potential in the, the team they've got now, and, and you imagine with what they've done already this window and what they probably will go and do in the summer, that they'll add to that and they'll sign some exciting players. But they need, if you look at the top, top six England as it is, they need three teams, maybe even four teams, to to have bad seasons for Aston Villa mm. to get into that top six. So they need, you know, let's, let's say the top four, top three is Liverpool, Chelsea, City, and then it's going to be, you know, one of my United, Spurs, Arsenal. But then that's the two teams below. That's going to be one of my United, Spurs, Arsenal. And then you start throwing... You know Leicester in the mix, who consistently been there for a couple of years now, and West and Ham maybe, too. Maybe West Ham too, yeah. Who deserved to be there last season and deserved to be to be there this season as well. So it's Aston Villa aren't quite there yet, um, and you know I think the signs we've seen from you know Gerard Villa so far is that they look like they can be an exciting team, and um, maybe we'll be talking in May after we've seen you know a good half a season of what they look like that. Okay, maybe next season, you know, Villa probably will finish between, let's say, ninth and thirteenth this season. But if you talk to me in May and say, okay, next year Villa could could make a crack at it, but I think there's still a long way to go on that. Yeah, so that's when we talk about Gerard and Villa. That's where the interesting point is for me because personally, I don't think they're on the same trajectory. Because how good do Aston Villa get right before, let's say, Liverpool come in for Gerard? How good does he have to prove to be? Because for Aston Villa at the moment, you've mentioned all the teams there. You've mentioned the fight for the top four and a few others. Let's say Aston Villa beat them and get into the top six. Not quite Champions League, but they've made it sixth. Is that a then good enough reason for Liverpool to go ahead and say, you know what, we're taking Gerrard now? Because if so, that it's 
you're almost setting up the club with Gerard that's doing so well and bringing these signings, but it's not necessarily an Aston Villa project. It seems separate. It does. You do get that impression. I, I remember a lot of Aston Villa fans saying when Gerard was announced that if you know Gerard does end up following what we all think he is going to and become Liverpool manager, then it will mean that he has done well at Aston Villa and Aston Villa would have benefited from that. But that, it's a good question because how does that look? Because I think with, with Gerard, uh, a, few, a few people on a you know for Liverpool podcast have made this point. So sort of regurgitating what sort of what they've said. The, the prize for for Steven Gerrard isn't getting the Liverpool job. The prize would be being successful as Liverpool manager and winning them the Premier League title and and fighting for the Champions League title, uh, trophy. And so, if he does well, not finishes in the top six with Villa a couple of times, that probably means he could get the Liverpool job. But does, does that necessarily mean he's in a position to? challenge for the title as Liverpool manager, it's it's a hard one to say because you obviously don't know how that looks yet. So I, I sort of think with, with Gerard basically speaking as a Liverpool fan, I think there's another role or another step along the ladder before he becomes Liverpool manager and, you know, throwing ideas out there, I think he maybe should go abroad and, and you know, if he has to look somewhere like Bundesliga, La Liga, I'm not sure he'd have any idea about doing this, but maybe he should and, and see if he can take over a club there and, and challenge for the title there. And obviously, we know how hard it is to challenge for the title in those countries, but I, I think Gerard can only benefit by doing something like that. And that is speaking from a, a very Liverpool-centric point of view and because, you know, me personally, after a dream for a lot of Liverpool fans would be Gerard to come back as manager and and, and win a trophy. Of course, is it would be incredible. Um, but I think it's it's a, a long time to go before that becomes a realistic uh, possibility. The the idea of Gerard leading a, a changing room with some sort of Scouse Spanish or Scouse German mix is unbelievable. <laughs> hey, you haven't seen me on the, on the department desk in the one football. I thought oh, it was yeah. <laughs> You thought Steve McLaren's Dutch accent? Or something. Oh yeah, this will be this will be next level, better than Barton's French. It will just be <laughs> it will be brilliant. Uh, right, let's move on quickly to um to Sunday afternoon and a stunning ninety minutes of football, which saw Leeds take all three points away from East London as they beat West Ham. Uh, Lewis, is this season seen as a bad one for Leeds, considering what they achieved last year, or is fighting against second season syndrome and staying up uh, more important this time around? Yeah, I get. I guess you'd have ended last season as a Leeds fan and at the club, and you'd be. It was last season was a massive success, firstly, and but you're always looking up, and you know we're talking about Villa now, and Leeds would have been thinking you know, what what Leicester are doing, what West Ham are doing, what Villa are doing. Can they do that? Can they be that team in that conversation for Europe this season? And obviously that hasn't come about. I think after so long outside the Premier League staying in the Premier League and establishing yourself is so important. And I think Brighton are an example as, an, a club, as a club that came up. They've never really been, you know, in the top half of the table. But they're now, you know, you look at Brighton, you think Brighton, that's a Premier League club. Mm. I mean, Southampton have had, what, one or two years in Europe in the last 10 years, but they've really established themselves as a Premier League side. I think that's the first step for Leeds, and that's that's not a one-season thing. That's a two or three-year thing. You know, the next question will be if they can do it. If they lose key players, if they can stay there, how they replace them. If they if Bielsa moves on at the end of the season as well, they've also played a lot of the season without the likes of Calvin Phillips, without Patrick Bamford. And I think if you'd have said in the summer that Leeds are gonna, 
you know, they've got this second season. We all know second season syndrome. We all know the condensed schedule and the type of football they play and taking its toll on them. If you were to tell me in the summer that Leeds were going to lose Phillips and lose Bamford for months at a time and that they wouldn't be in the relegation zone more than halfway through the season, I reckon I would have called that a pretty good job well done like up to this point. And I think there's just, compared to the other teams down there, there's enough quality that they won't get dragged into too much trouble as well. Yeah, you'd think so from looking at the first 11, but be also like small squads. So when you look at the bench, I mean, this this win with their bench cannot be understated, I think. Honestly. And it this... looked like Leeds again, didn't it? Like yeah, exactly. It like, like They haven't looked like Leeds of last season much this year. But that this looked like last season's Leeds just blowing a team away. And imagine Phillips and Bamford in there as well. That was without yeah, them. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing. I, I'm surprised. I don't know if it is a fitness thing. He has been injured as well. But, you know, he brought on two teenagers before he brought on Rodrigo as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And then took one of them off. Yeah, yeah. But the, but that's the number of injuries, you know. Like, Rodrigo's still not fit. Bamford's not been playing. And Jack Harrison's not been injured as often as, as most of those players. But I think until a few weeks ago, hadn't scored yet this season. And you've got to think that not having Bamford leading the line has had an impact, you know, on, on performances like his. It's basically just been Rafinha carrying them so far mm. this season. There, but there is quality there. Even if it is only the first 11 and maybe one or two beyond that as well. There is quality there and they're a team that, that play attacking football. And I think more often than not, when you do that and do that in a good way, you do get rewarded for it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I thought it was a fantastic win for them. But on the other side, uh, a disappointed defeat for West Ham. Joel, do you think West Ham's home form might be their undoing in the season's top four race? Uh, no disrespect to these teams, but they've now dropped points at home to Brentford, Brighton, Palace, Leeds and Southampton. They're such a weird team to sort of analyse at the moment because they've also beaten Liverpool and, and Chelsea at home. Mm. Um, and Spurs. Season. <laughs> and Spurs as well <laughs> this season. You know, it's it's uh, what that sort of points to me is that they are a team who, that their style of playing and the way they're playing sets them up is that they're very good at playing away from home and, and, and want the team to sort of leave, come at them and leave gaps and maybe don't necessarily do well when the, the onus is on them to control the game and, and, and you know and, and they have to break down a, bit, a, a low block but I, I mean they played Leeds yesterday and, and so it's hard to say that because Leeds don't do that so it's you know I'm not, not quite sure where we are West Ham on that point but I think sort of looking at their defence at the moment and, and, and then Mikel Antonio up front so I think there's two things that are sort of affecting them right now I think you know, Kieran Zuma's been a big miss. Angela Ogbonna's been a big miss. And I don't think, you know, Craig Dawson is the upper are both solid defenders. But, you know, they've been at to you know, be stuck out there every week and it's starting to get to them a little bit. And they've now conceded 30 goals in, you know, 22 games, which is... Which isn't an, uh, awful, but you know, in recent weeks they are starting to uh, look a bit leaky at the back, and, and I think going forward as well, Antonio's just having to you know to keep sort of force him to come out there, and, and he runs himself into the ground, and it's something that West Ham I think needs to look at in the transfer window is is bringing someone in who can either compliment him or or, or take his place and give him a rest, and um, whether that be a straightforward striker, number nine, or, you know, to try and get Jesse Lingard back and he plays a sort of false nine and I'm telling you, I can have a little sort of day off here and there and because he looks knackered at the moment, he looks exhausted and I still think he played well yesterday, I'm telling you, and 
he set up that chance for Jared Bowen in the last minute. That oh, God, yeah. Sh- should go in. I mean, I'm not sure why he cho- choose to chest it there. But, yeah, I, th- I think... <laughs> I, I, I think that's they're, they're sort of the fit factors that are sort of coming at them at the moment and you know they played a lot of games like they did well in Europa League but I guess those games kind of take a toll but it's not it's not too bad for them I mean they are still in the top four as it stands and okay the team's playing we've got games in hand but yeah I, I think the home form is, is sort of a little bit of an issue but I think more than that they just need to get a few bodies in the, in the transfer window and I can still see them finishing the top six to be honest You'd, you'd probably think so. Um, talking of bodies in the chancel window, we're moving on to Newcastle against Watford, who um, who drew one all at the weekend. This message came in from Dan Cohen, actually before the weekend's game. So looking back on it, it's quite amusing. It's clearly a Watford <laughs> fan. Uh, I said, who will be joining Norwich in going down? Most relegated clubs don't have a goal scorer, but we've got Emmanuel Dennis. That's a sentence I never thought I'd hear anyone say. Um, but he's he's done pretty well to to be fair to him this season, Dennis. Uh, Joel, is one good striker enough to stave off relegation? Because Watford really do look horrible defensively. And um, as we've seen, Alison Maximan can't really do it all himself for Newcastle either. One good striker is good enough to stave off the relegation if you are solid enough at the back and can keep clean sheets because if you can you know stay in games and, and keep games to you know one nil two one then you know a, a, a striker can score 12 to 15 goals a season is absolutely gold dust from the bottom half and Emmanuel Dennis looks clearly capable of doing that I, I actually find Watford quite well, have been exciting to watch at times this year, which is weird to say. But they, they especially when he went to you know Grosvenor Park and stuck five past them because you know they were they were great on the counter attack that day, and, and they showed in a couple of games as well. You know they put four past Man United as well, so you know they, they have got a lot of quick players who are got good technique and can cause damage it seems up there but it's, it is just obviously as we've alluded to there the, the problem going going back, and I think. If, if Claudio, it's it's a weird one that Claudio Ranieri has not been able to see to that yet. And I actually think it might be a bit strange that Watford and the owners and their style that we have, that they actually have made another managerial change at this stage. Um, because, you know, it's what, six, seven losses on, on you know in a row before they played Newcastle the weekend. And you're thinking, you know, he could have gone at any time before then. And it just seems strange with the Pozos and what they do. And, and it's a model that people turn their nose up at, but it's worked in the past, that they haven't sacked the manager yet. And I, I do wonder whether Watford and, and Ranieri can can sort out that defence without making another managerial change this season. That's the kiss of death right there, Joel. That's what, <laughs> that's what you've just given to Ranieri. <laughs> <laughs> um, very quickly on Newcastle, Lewis. Alison Maximan, if Newcastle go down, he doesn't stay, surely. I know with all this money, like the... They're gonna have the like some ridiculous squad in the championship. Yeah, uh, yeah. Is one striker enough to keep a team up? I don't know. If one player in the bottom four is good enough to keep a team up, it's probably Alan Samax. Yeah, you're probably right actually on that one. To be fair. Um, yeah, and uh, Newcastle are gonna do more, aren't they? Surely, they, like we're gonna see an extra sort of hundred million in signings before this window closes. I reckon. Kalo Navas is the latest name that I've I've been reading about. Sure. He's not going to put the ball in the back of the net. Ball. He's not, but <laughs> going the other way. 
going the other way. I, I think he could be okay. I'm not sure he's, he's quite going to join, though. Um, actually, you just mentioned Everton there, Joel. We'll move on to their defeat to Norwich. I never thought I'd see the day we were talking about a Norwich win on the podcast, but here we are. Stranger things have happened. Uh, Rafa Benitez has been sacked Sunday night. He got his marching orders from Goodison Park. Um, he said, I didn't realise the magnitude of the task. Now, please, what on earth does that mean, Joel? I mean, he clearly hasn't been looking at that at Everton for the past <laughs> what, 10, 15 years. He didn't realise the magnitude of the task. It's, it, obviously, we like, we can always sort of speculate about what goes on behind the scenes at Goodison Park without having, well, getting confirmation. But I think Rafa has alluded to it there, and I think previous managers who have you know, seen their marching orders have, have alluded to it. And it's it's a hard one to sort of criticise without actually knowing, again, like Manchester United, who is making the football and decisions. But everything just smack of a club that don't really know where they want to go and how, how well, they probably know where they want to go, but they don't know how to get there. They don't know what the best way to get there is. And just sort of throw a lot of things at a wall, hope one of them sticks. And that's why it's come across, you know, for a long time now. Um, I sort of wrote a piece on Benitez yesterday and, and, and what Everton do next and you know Farad Mashiri the owner of the club is now going to be on looking for a seventh manager and Oof. you know on, on that list of managers that you know that have been in the club in the past couple of years you know you've had Marco Silva you've had Roberto Martinez Ronald Koeman and then you've had Sam Allardyce and I think that's just sort of and I call him Chelsea and it's just like I mean that sounds like a good night out, good pints, but it's, it's, it's an absolute array of contrasting managers and, and what they do and what they sort of bring to a team. And I think what that suggests is that Everton don't really know what kind of club they want to be and how they want to look on the pitch. And you know, that, that's what they sort of need to have a think of now. When um, when Marcel Brands left the club in the start of December, Everton released a statement and said they're gonna, you know, have a little sort of strategic review on the best way to take the club forward in the long term, and and that's what they sort of need to, to get right, and and they probably need to get uh, guys in or girls in who can make football decisions and make, make right ones because it doesn't seem to be a something that, that anyone is. Um, making the correct decisions there for a long time. But but this is what I don't quite understand. So I think I, I was reading, a, it was a tweet actually, I think you might have retweeted it, Joel, so I'm probably just repeating this back to you, that <laughs> the director of medical, the head of recruitment, the manager of scouting, and the director of football all left under Rafa Benitez. Now, I'm not saying he was directly involved in that, but when you couple it with the fact he was given a three-year deal, I believe, that sort of speaks to me that Everton did plan for big changes under Rafa, that they gave him three years, they made big changes behind the scenes and that they were planning something. So now it just seems like they've done that for nothing. Six months in, they're going to have to start again. Yeah, I think that's what backs up the point really is that you know, they've also you know, sold Luca Dean, he's yeah. gone a couple of weeks after falling out with the manager and then that manager has now gone. So it sounds like it, it sounds like they did put all their chips on Benitez going forward with, with what you just alluded to there, Matt. And um but then and they've gone back on that you know quite quickly. And I, I think the decision to sack him was warranted because it's been one win in thirty. Oh yeah. And, and a, a team that has really looked like mid table can fodder has now dropped down and looks like it's gonna be in a big relegation scrap. But it's it does, it's just such a weird club. They really are because I, I, they've sort of felt for years that they should be challenging for the, for the top six. And I think all clubs should have aspirations of better days. But 
they're not really you don't really know how to get there I, I'm, I'm sort of looking at sort of what they're going to do going forward now you look at some of the names that are getting linked to the job and you know Graham Potter you know would be I think would be a good you know good decision but I don't think he's going to leave Brighton for them I don't think they're big enough right now obviously a big club in Brighton but not big enough right now for, for Potter to leave um, Brighton to go to Everton and, and then you know Wayne Rooney and then Roberto Martins getting linked and again none of these guys sort of have much in common in terms of you know what they're going to bring to Everton. So it's it's all just again throwing chips at a world, hope something sticks. And I, I actually think Everton, you know, personally need to have a look at sort of going forward what they want to do and maybe take a sort of a, a lump on on the youth. And you know, Everton got great youth facilities and have produced great yeah academy players for a long time. And maybe they need to have a look at that, and maybe you know, they have a look at the championship and have a look at a manager there who, you know, maybe isn't pulling up too many trees right now, but they, they can have a think and maybe has potential. Um, you know, for let's throw Scott Parker at Bournemouth or Nathan Jones at Luton. You know, they sound like mad things to say or mad suggestions to make, but Everton needs to have a little think outside the box now because they tried nearly everything every type of manager in every type of way and it's not worked for a long time and I think they need to sort of go back to year zero now and sort of find out what their identity is again absolutely absolutely you should you should support Everton mate <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> you're cheering for him uh just to touch on Norwich really quickly Lewis uh it was a great win is this more of a positive blip in their poor form or are they actually going to go on a relegation defying run um Look at the league table. I'm not sure if anyone needs to go on a much of a defying run. Like the, I was amazed. I looked at the league table again. You sort of look at it every weekend and you don't really take it in. And then sometimes you look at it and you're like, what the hell is going on? It's January and there are four <laughs> teams that don't have 15. I think or four teams under 15. Yeah, under 15. Points, I think so, yeah. Which is absolutely mad at this stage of the season. I think all four of those is Burnley, who have got a few games in hand now. Uh, Newcastle, Watford and Norwich it, it basically just takes two wins and one of those teams might sort of catapult themselves to, to the top of that pile you don't have to be any good I don't think to survive in the Premier League this year You just there are just four teams at the bottom and you need to not be or you need to be the best of those four um, I, I don't think Norwich will stay up and I didn't think a month ago or a few weeks ago that Norwich had any chance of staying up but when you look at how tight it is down there and how poor those four sides have all been this season it really does just need a couple of maybe a couple of good decisions going their way you know, avoiding injuries you nick one game you beat one of the, the other three teams that's down there in another game and you could find yourself sort of three, four, five points out of it. It's, it's incredible how close it is. So, I mean, I didn't think I'd be saying this, but everything to play for still for Norwich. Yeah, absolutely. And I believe, I'm just double checking now. Uh, yes, Watford is their next game. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's massive. Absolutely massive. <laughs> what Watford is their next match. And uh, yeah, exactly. You're talking about beating teams around you. Uh, two of the teams actually who are a little bit above them and not sort of really going anywhere uh, is Brighton and Crystal Palace. They played out a one-all draw on Friday night. Uh, you mentioned Graham Potter there, Joel. Um, Lewis, do you seem to echo what Joel's saying about it's probably not the right time for Potter to jump ship and move to Goodison Park? Uh, I just don't see why he would. Uh, you know, Brighton, 
and Everton, like, that's not to disrespect Everton, who are, mm. you know, a big club, but Brighton have got their shit together where Everton haven't, basically. The, the recruitment is good. The idea for the style of play is good. There is, <coughs> excuse me, there's, Potter has complete job security at Brighton as well. He has the complete confidence of his bosses. He doesn't have to prove anything to anyone. And they're doing really well again this season. So I think it'd be a hell of a get for Everton if they could convince him. But I don't see why he would take the job. I think both of these clubs are that sort of the sort of club like Joel was alluding to that Everton could be looking at. Like, how do we work smarter? The the work Palace have done to refresh the squad the last couple of years. You know, Palace, I think, are the best team in the league at signing the most talented players in the championship and giving them a place in the Premier League, which is, it's weird. It, it feels like a really underused market from Premier League teams to go and buy top championship players. And every year we see it. We see Leeds come up, we see Brentford come up and we see players and we think, oh yeah, he's really good. He could, but why have, why have Premier League clubs not targeted them You know, a year or two earlier? And that's what Palace have done really, really well the last couple of seasons. Um, you know, that and, and the academy... Brighton, similarly, they, they sign players that other clubs don't even look at. They sign players from you know maybe less popular leagues, from the Netherlands and things like that. It works. Championship as well, Neil Mopai up front, obviously. It's worked for both of these teams. I think Everton could look at both and, and learn a lot about building a squad and building a team from the work that Brighton and Palace are doing. And it, it shows in the league table. Both these clubs don't have the budget or the size of Everton as a club and they're both flying I mean we talk about those sort of subdivisions of the league and mm. these are two clubs knocking on that can we get into Europe door now well I, I hate to put a pin in your palace balloon there actually uh, but they've got two wins in their last 10 games <laughs> uh, 24 points from 21 games two less points than at the same stage last season under Roy Hodgson so the word on the street, as proven there by Lewis, is that Patrick Vieira has done a good job in South London. But is that really the case, Joel? Oh, look, he's coming up with Patrick Vieira. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I agree with the signings, though. I, I do agree on the signings part. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to back Paddy V and, and Lewis up here as well, I think. Because I, I think, I think that it speaks to a lot of Palace fans. They, they sort of were, were happy on the Hodgson, but they knew that there was a limit a ceiling to, to his abilities and where they could go with, with, with him in charge. And I think with Palace, okay, they're in a similar sort of spot as they, they were last season, and they probably will finish in a similar sort of, in a similar sort of position that they did last season. But they can look going forward and have hope that there are better days ahead and there is a plan to break into that top half and that they can go about it. And, and, and the football as well is a lot more exciting to watch. And, you know, OK, it's producing the same sort of results as last year, as we said. But would you rather watch the football that you played last year or the football you played this year? Palace fans can answer that. And I have an idea that they probably would answer that they, they like it this year because, you know, they, you know, they do look capable of scoring goals in every game and, and getting, you know, twos and threes. And they've got a lot more exciting players and, and they sort of try and play a bit more expansive. And, and I, th- I think they're good to watch. And I think it's, um, you know, a, lot, a longer term plan, which which may bear fruit. And any, any time will tell on that. But do you have an idea to, to you know, Sign these players in the championship, and, and then you know you look at you know Eze last year looked incredible. Michael Elise, you know, was sort of being 
broken in at sort of a slow rate right now. Uh, sorry, the season should I say, but you know comes on in the FA Cup last week and wins the game for them. And I think you can hang your hat on on those kind of players and and those kind of signings. And they also Palace has spent a lot of money doing up their youth academy uh, over the past couple of years, and that that's coming out now. And they can certainly you know looking forward to the next couple of years on on who they'll produce from that academy too. And I I think there's a they're one of the most exciting teams in the division for me, Palace, to have a look at going forward. And, and I think uh, Paddy V is doing a, a half-decent job, but you should sort of take them at sort of face value, I guess, and say, OK, it's solid, but on the spectacular right now. But we'll see. I just love the reference to Paddy V, like he's your best mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, does, does, he, does he join you, Ancelotti, Allardyce, Coleman and Martinez in a pint? Is that it? Is Allardyce drinking a pint of wine at that point? Right? Oh, yeah, yeah probably. probably. Yeah, he's, he's not here to be nice. Nah. The thing is, who's suggesting karaoke first? I was know? about to say, it, is <laughs> Joel suggesting karaoke first? 100%. I could see Cooman being like, you know. <laughs> What's Cooman's go to? That's the question. <laughs> it's something the final countdown. Oh, shots fired all over the podcast today. Also, hearing Crystal, pa- hearing that Everton should follow the Crystal Palace method is something I never thought I'd hear. But there we are on the One Football Premier League podcast. <laughs> right, next up, we'll move to Molyneux. Let's just all agree right now that James Will Prout is the greatest free kick taker the Premier League has ever seen. Yeah, the- fine. He didn't even curl it. It was like a Ronaldo outside of the boot. I feel ashamed to say I first saw it on a GIF on Twitter. That was how I first saw that goal. Oh, we might have seen the same thing. We we should unfollow each other, otherwise this will keep happening. (laughs) Um, It was unbelievable, but it did uh, highlight a shortcoming for Southampton as James Will-Prowse is their top scorer with six goals. Um, I know Armando Brogett had a pretty good season on loan from Chelsea, but like I said, it is a loan. It's fair to say they haven't adequately replaced Danny Ings, isn't it, Lewis? Yeah, I mean, I think Che Adams obviously had a pretty good season last season. They spent a lot of money on Adam Armstrong and it hasn't paid off or hasn't paid off so far anyway. And you look at the team and I wonder how much the problem is those three strikers and how much is the problem of what's behind them. I mean, no disrespect, but... Nathan Redmond, Theo Walcott and Stuart Armstrong still getting a lot of minutes for a Premier League team as the sort of, in the positions where you'd expect your creative players to be, You, I don't think you can be expecting to have in many chances and score many goals when those are your sort of attacking creative midfielders, those players that are maybe going to chip in with three or four goals a season themselves, but their job really is to make the team tick and oil things in the final third. It, they're just not. It's 2022. Like the, these guys should be playing a lot of Premier League football, basically. And like I say, no disrespect to them, but what does a what does a uh, Southampton goal look like to you? Uh, a, it's just a, it's a free just kick. Free kick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Literally, like, it. That's it. It's a free kick, or he or he whips in a corner, and one of the big centre backs gets on. It. And, yeah. And, and those are the only two goals that I can think of Southampton scoring. Uh, it yeah, and that to me it's I don't know then how much of the problem is the strikers or what's supplying the strikers, and maybe I'd lean a bit more towards the second one, just because I think uh, Brozier and Adams and and Adam Armstrong, all to varying degrees, I like I don't think they're bad strikers, um, 
but I don't think there's any service there. Yeah, I certainly think you've highlighted it there. The wing play needs to be so much better, I think. And they've also got a Teller, I think, as well as the youngster. Yeah, Nathan Teller. Yeah. Livermento looked good at wing yeah. early in the season, but it's obviously, I think he's injured at the moment. Yeah, I... Southampton are maybe the team with like with Norwich and, and Burnley because they play such a different style to everyone else. I think if you went through the squads at every Premier League club, Southampton are the team where you'd pick the fewest players that any of the top six or seven clubs w- would want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're probably right on that one. Um, as for Wolves, though, it was a 3-1 victory. I was sitting there scratching my brain trying to think of some questions of what to talk about at Wolves and I couldn't quite do it. They're just so odd. They've they've scored the third least with 17, but conceded the second least with 15, second only to Man City. Uh, And and it was a good win. And they're in eighth. I can't tell you about their style. It seems like Raul Jimenez leads the line very well. They aren't getting the best out of Podence. It was a poor season from last year. Adama Traore looks on the way out. Um, It's very odd. They just sort of seem to be there. Sorry, Wolves fans. I'll do my research this week and we'll go in a full deep dive, but I couldn't think of anything else to say apart from a good win at home. It's obviously not the most exciting of eras, but at least they're not in a relegation scrap. Um, moving on that very quickly to, to Liverpool 3, Brentford nil. Joel, was this anything more than a routine win for a dominant Liverpool side? I must admit I was heavily involved in the West Ham Leeds game, so didn't catch this one. Um, yeah, it was to an extent, I guess, at the end, the end of the day. You know, Brentford didn't really offer too much going forward, and, and and Liverpool eventually managed to break them down through suddenly, you know, our top goal scoring midfielders for being there, and which you never saw coming. Um, but we are where we are. But um, it's yeah, a, a Liverpool needs to get that job done. Really, it was all about winning yesterday, and you know, Liverpool hadn't won in three games, so they had to, they had to get back on the horse, and and they did. And you know what? Speaking, you know, as a fan, it's it's good that you know Liverpool finally not involved in a absolute thriller classic game on a on a Sunday or a, or a Saturday night because I'm sick of Liverpool being involved in in, in good games with teams and not winning. So uh, <laughs> you know, sort of referring to Brentford, the Brentford game, Tottenham, the first Brentford game, the Tottenham and the Chelsea games in recent weeks. Give me more of these one, two, three nil routine wins, please. <laughs> You you you've turned something very exciting like a football match into something very boring. I was I to win games, Matt. The end of the day, that's all they You are ruthless. They could do with you at Everton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, next up, we move on to one of two postponed games. We'll get to the other one in a very short while. Uh, Burnley Leicester was called off. Another one for Burnley. Um, at I am Jack Bryan on Twitter has written Burnley and Leicester now have four or five games in hand due to COVID. Uh, does that potentially allow them to have an advantage to the others? Leicester have so many injuries and players that are due to come back, and Burnley could potentially get out of trouble with games in hand. What do you reckon, Lewis? I guess with the Burnley thing, are you taking games in hand or points on the board? That's that's the age-old question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you take the points all day long, yeah. right? You, you do take the points. I don't think Burnley, I mean, they play Leicester, they play Spurs. I'm not sure who the other two games in hand are against. Uh, but obviously the Spurs one was called off due to the snow. The snow, yeah. Leicester this weekend. Uh, that's two games that you wouldn't expect Burnley to win. Uh, so, you know, that you can already maybe write off. If the if the results go the way you expect, that's two games and then they'll be down to, to one or two games in hand against the teams above them. Um, and it doesn't look quite as rosy very, very quickly. 
I I worry for these teams that have lots of games. Tottenham are another one that have a lot of games that have been called off. I worry for these teams, especially you know who Leicester, Spurs are still in the FA Cup. Just for the fixture congestion, and we're talking about West Ham dropping points, and they've just had the first half of the season, obviously with the Europa League games as well, when it feels like those minutes are starting to take a bit of a toll on the legs now. Uh, yeah, I. I don't think this is a good season to have games in hand. Um, if, if my team, or if, if I'm looking at the league table and seeing teams with two, three, four games to catch up, I'm looking at that thinking, where the hell are they going to squeeze these in and where are a players, key players going to get any sort of a break? Especially when you say like Leicester players coming back, but that means players have been injured and you're, you're rushing them back and then forcing them to play maybe three, four games with midweeks in a row it's not the best situation. Burnley as well, another one who we mentioned like Leeds earlier, they play with such a small squad and such a small selection of players. Can they play games back to back to back over and over again and perform without it affecting the performances? I I don't think it's a good time to have lots of games in hand, personally. Probably not, which means you'll probably expect a few of these teams to be busy. Uh, Talking of one of these rumours, Joel... Is Burnley being linked with Andy Carroll the most Burnley signing ever? <laughs> I mean, it's the most hilarious. Thing ever. I mean, I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure I've seen that, but I really hope it happens because, yeah, it is. I mean, it's like when he signed Peter Crouch. I was just thinking that um, <laughs> to sort of fill the gap. I mean, they've got a gap to fill. Chris Wood gone, but you know, I, I kind of hope that. I don't think this will happen. Um, I can't see Fulham letting him go, but I really want in all my world for Bernie to sign Alexander Mitrovic from Fulham and um, and that'll probably keep them up. But you know, Fulham are not going to let him go, are they? But that would be the most Bernie sign ever as well, mm. I think. I think I'd get a half-seen to get tear more if that happens. Oh. Joel, do you, know, do you know who the other one is? The Like the Burnley, the, the archetypal Burnley striker? Go on. It's Wales' is Kiefer Moore. Oh yeah! Oh god, yeah. It's Wales is key for more, and that's where, I, like, if I can really see that happening. You mean Sam Vokes two point oh? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I can really see that happening now, um, and then going for that, and 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 him scoring the goals to keep him up. Amazing, right? That is it for the football that was played at the weekend because now we're moving on to the hot topics of the week and of course it's pretty clear where we will start with the only hot topic of this week as we try to decipher and work our way through the Premier League's rules on match postponements. Lewis, I mean Joel, get your refereeing whistle at the ready. Lewis, should the Premier League have agreed to Arsenal's request of having the North London derby postponed? I do not see how the Premier League could not agree to Arsenal's request because of their own rules. And I, I think this is where this has become really contentious and confusing. Um, like, should do I personally think that Arsenal should have been, got this game called off? No. I, but I also think that for most of the previous 19 mm. games that were called off, I think teams should have to use their under-23s. I think under-18s is harsh to say that you have to use like three or four 16, 17-year-olds. Yeah. I think it's a step far. But teams that... Have, like, let's let's cut the line at 18 then. And I would I would have said as the Premier League, if people... If clubs still have 15, 16 players on professional contracts over the age of 18, past their 18th birthday, then I think games should have gone ahead. And I think that's been the case beyond not just now not just this weekend but for the last month or so that we've had these games getting called off um 
as uh, like specifically the Arsenal situation, uh, Arsenal made an application like the other nineteen games have been applied applied for according to the rules and according to the Premier League rules, the game was right to be called off because there weren't thirteen senior players available. But the, so that's what I agree with. I don't I don't blame Arsenal at all for 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 putting in a request. Rules, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They they had every right to and technically by the rules, um, they had it. But what I wanted to do is so we've got the Premier League statement that they put out and I've got three different points and I kind of just wanted to gauge your opinion both of you on these particular ones especially looking at looking at the Arsenal game um so the first one was with Arsenal having fewer than the required number of players available for the match which is 13 outfield players and one goalkeeper uh, the board accepted the club's decision my question is and you, you touched on it there very briefly Lewis at which point do we discount the youth players, right, who could potentially be good enough on the flip side of the situation? Because I'm assuming that this is it, Charlie Patino was one of them. Yeah, I, I think I've seen this. I think I've seen that, not counting the FA Cup because mm. uh, of the weekend because of the, the way that that's gone. I think I've seen that any any under 21 player who's not like registered in the Premier League squad who's made a start this season counts as the what was the term is it something to do with experience right like um i can't remember exactly what the, mm. the term the premier league used but like appropriate experience or something like that um at that level i think i think it's any player that started a game so like for example bakayo saka counts obviously yeah and gabriel martinelli counts uh charlie patino started the fa cup game last weekend but that's the only game he has started for us so i don't think he would have counted um yeah, I mean, I, d- I think that's fair enough if you say you don't have 13 players who have the, ever started a game in in the league or in the League Cup. Yeah, the, well, the, the reason I ask is because if it was on the flip side, like I mentioned, Arsenal would be u- willing to use, I don't know, you've got a 17-year-old wonder kid who you think can do a bit against Tottenham. You'd have no hesitation in throwing him in because it will work to your benefit. What do you mean? Well, as in, if Arsenal turn around and say, uh, we, we haven't got enough first-team players, right? And the Premier League said, sure you do. You've got loads of kids. They obviously haven't said that. It's 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 a way of saying that, you know, we don't think the kids have got enough experience, this sort of, this, that, the other. But if they did, if they did think the kids were good enough, Arsenal would throw them indefinitely. Yeah, they, exactly, exactly. And I think, like like, Charlie Patino, for example... Like if he was good enough to be playing Premier League football every week, he'd be playing Premier League football every mm. week. He's not made a Premier League appearance this season. Um, I think Arsenal, in particular this season, and you've seen it with Smith Rowe and mm. Saka and Martinelli. Like there's been no hesitation from the club to use these kids and use them a lot um, if the club think they're ready and and good enough. You know, it spent 150 million or so in the summer, and not a single player over the age of 23. I think Arsenal are the last team you could accuse of not wanting yeah. to use young players that are good enough. And, and like I say, the fact that Patino hasn't played in the Premier League this season is is just because Arsenal don't think he's ready to play in the Premier League. Yeah. Well, I, I was trying to I was trying to doff different hats this weekend and think uh, how can I not be so biased about this and try and keep level headed. And I do agree that, that that I don't think the Premier League basically have the right to say who or is or isn't good enough to be in the Arsenal to be in the Arsenal 11 they can't say yeah but you got this kid 
you know, you can't just say he's got to be good enough. So I, I sort of agree with you on that one. Um, we'll move on to the next point, though. Again, I've just sort of cherry-picked a few bits out of the Premier League statement. Uh, it says, The decision is a result of a combination of COVID-19 existing in recent injuries and players on international duty at the African Cup of Nations. All clubs are able to apply for postponement if COVID-19 infections are a factor in their request. So as long as they're a factor, it doesn't say by what point the fact they are. Right, um, it doesn't... It doesn't. That's it. This is what's also interesting to me, is it doesn't say... That like that you need a number of players infected. Apparently, it was in the Independent over the weekend. Part of Arsenal's argument was that uh, over the last what, three weeks or so, the club have had eleven players um, positive. I think ten or eleven mm. first team players positive for COVID, um, and it means other players have played more than they wanted to, more than they were actually able to. And the club have said that that's where injuries have come from. So these, so some of these injuries that have ruled players out are COVID-related injuries, even if the players aren't absent because they themselves have caught coronavirus, which, I mean, I don't know how that works with the Premier League. If, if the Premier League go, you know what, fair enough. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, Bakayo Saka's injured because he's had to play seven games in a row because two other players got coronavirus. Like, I don't know if the Premier League, how much they take that into account. Um, but this is the problem with the rules, right? Like, that's so ambiguous. Like, does that exactly. count? Yeah. The player's injured because teammates got coronavirus and the player had to play whatever number of games in a row. And the, the Premier League have done such an awful job of... of providing clarity around this whole situation. Yeah, and I, I think as well with the AFCON... This is one that doesn't quite sit right with me. I know, and and Jurgen Klopp talks about it with with Mane and Salah. I'm like, but you knew about this, Jurgen. You knew, you always know. You've known. It's not even you knew when you when you you know sit down at the start of the season. You've known when you signed these players, right? Salah and Mane coming in. What was it? Four years ago now. Um, It's part of it. I think that's that's the, the one. That shouldn't really, that shouldn't count. Yeah, towards I agree. This. No, it shouldn't at all, should it? Um, I think Granit Xhaka's suspension also didn't count towards this, and and he would sort of counted as a fit player. That if it had have made up thirteen, then Arsenal would have made been made to play the game, even though Xhaka was suspended and not able to play. Um, and I think that's completely fine. Like that's his fault or the club's fault or whatever that he got a red card. That's not grounds for for getting a cane hmm. called off. Uh, but I would put AFCON in the same category as that. All the clubs knew, all the players knew, everyone involved knew months and months and months ago that you know this game would happen this weekend and players wouldn't be available because they'd be at the African Cup of Nations. And clubs had the choice in the summer and the first two weeks of this window to do something about it. And if they haven't done it, then that's their fault and their problem. Yeah, no, I I, I would tend to go on that one. Maybe, maybe wipe the AFCON bit out of... Um out of the rules in that one. The uh, the final bit is, uh, it says, the Premier League's postponement rules are designed to protect the well-being of players and staff while maintaining the sporting integrity of the competition. Uh, Joel, I'll put this one to you. When it says the well-being of staff and players, I can only assume they're talking about reducing the risk of spreading the disease and injury as well. Yeah. So Spurs had a case for example, this weekend. And plenty of other squads have been allowed to play this season. I think Jurgen Klopp said there was one more this weekend uh, in the Liverpool squad. I know Pep Guardiola also mentioned that City had one. If that's the case, 
are you not endangering the well-being of players and staff every single week by consistently having just one person in your squad with COVID? I've seen lots of possibilities. That's always going to be a risk, but you know the club sort of, well, the Premier League makes them, and the clubs do it by sort of trying to sort of deal that risk by testing them regularly. And I know the rules on that have changed in in recent weeks, probably because of the situation that the league finds itself in now, where they are reducing, well, taking away the PCR testing and reducing the natural lateral flow test, isn't it? If I remember mm-hmm. correctly, uh, two per week. So that that they're all. I guess. The whole risk of playing football in the pandemic is that the squad and the club staff are always going to be at risk of, of, of getting there, but the clubs are doing their best and following the protocols to make sure that risk is as low as possible. It, it, it's never going to be completely 0% risk of, of, of not being able to get, to get COVID because, you know, it's that's just the way it is. But the clubs have done pretty well at handling it for 18 months now, and it is only since this new variance has read its head that, you know, it has become a, a bit of an issue because... It does appear that that's the more, more transitional than, than anything else before it, and um, and that's just the way it happened. But I, I think the Premier League has found itself into a bit of a sticky patch now, and I'm not quite sure how they find the the, the time and the schedule to get all the fixes finished. But that's something that we'll have to see in in, in the coming months because I think we could be looking at sort of teams playing maybe three four games, or some teams playing three four games a week in in May, um, and maybe playing Monday, Wednesday, Friday. That 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 could happen and uh, that's what you're talking about never mind the endanger and risking the player welfare of them getting COVID the Premier League aren't really thinking about the player welfare in terms of trying to get all these fixtures into a tight schedule and, and, and not having conversations about trying to you know let's say expand the calendar I, I know that there are more moving parties in that obviously there's a World Cup to come so it's that's not the easiest thing to sort out but you know you would think all the governing bodies and all the and all the leagues around you know the world would you know sort of come together to try and think of play welfare in this but I guess haven't really done that up until this stage so why would they do it now? Yeah exactly I, I think that the the one sort of uh, a positive for it, I would say, over the weekend about the Arsenal Spurs game being postponed, is that it is a derby, it is a big game, and as a fan of football, you do want to see two of the best teams going at it. You don't want, you know, a, a, an unfair game. Like on that, I, I'm not maybe not the unfairness, but just sort of the idea of having the top players exactly fixtures. Yeah, I was surprised that Tottenham fans were so upset considering Human Son's injured at the moment. Oh, honestly, I think Spurs are in terrible form, so it's probably not a bad idea. <laughs> I, I really thought Spurs would be quite on board with the game getting moved um, and and getting Son back for whenever it is going to be played now. Um, but I guess they they obviously smelt the the blood of a of a weakened Arsenal side and thought even without Son they fancied their chances so I can understand that as well but it's not like Arsenal would assuming Son comes back fit um, when when he's supposed to mm. it's not like Arsenal have, are the only team that have gained sort of an advantage from this particular fixture uh, being postponed Spurs should have a stronger side when it actually gets played now as well yeah God forbid someone who couldn't play this weekend scores in the return game oh, it's it would just ah oh, the, the story's written itself you, you can you can write it today, uh, right? That is um, all from the football for the weekend. But we do have some transfer window gossip. Two players of particular interest this week. One of the rumours that was heating up somewhat was Yuri Tielemans departing Leicester. 
Um, Brendan Rogers said that Yuri is at an age and a stage in his contract where he has to ensure he looks at every option. I'd love it to be here at Leicester. That's natural, but I understand it's a very short career. Does this sound a bit too negative, Joel? Uh, should he come out and say, you know, we want to be a big club, challenge the top four, and we'll do it best with Yuri in the side? Because I worry this makes Rogers look like he's admitting he knows Leicester are a bit of a stepping stone. Well, I think Leicester have been a stepping stone for for a long time, even when they won the league. Um, and, and I think that comment and, and maybe the attitude of the manager and the player is, is actually maybe a bit grown up about the whole thing. Because Leicester, even when they win the league, they you know they sell Mares, they did sell Kante, and then even recently, you know, as the years gone by, they've, they've sold Chilwell. It, it, it suggests that it's it's a model they follow, and it, it maybe reminds me a little bit of the way Sevilla sort of handle things in La Liga, where you know they 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 manage to recruit really well, go win the Europa League every season, and then uh, and then sell sell on a couple of players for profits, and then rebuild the team again. And Leicester maybe haven't done that to the same extent, but there's echoes of that in there. And I think that's absolutely fine for for Leicester to approach it that way. And and I think you know regarding the Tillemans, like the last you know, let's say the last two seasons, they've been in the race for the top four and missed out pretty much in the last day of the season both times. And and you wonder whether, you know, Tielemans has sort of thought now whether he's going to be able to play in the Champions League and achieve that at Leicester. And I think if Leicester had finished in the top four either of those seasons, he probably wouldn't be having thoughts about moving on right this minute. Um, he's a player that looks like he's got a big move in him and another big move in him. And um, and a fair play to him that, he, you know, maybe that Rodgers is thinking about his career there. And, and considering that, I think, I think that's a, a pretty grown-up way to approach it. But it's... It's absolutely, that's absolutely fine. I think. I think Leicester, maybe looking at that team now, they maybe reached the limits of what they're going to do. They've, they've won the trophy. They've nearly got to the top four. Not quite done it, and maybe need to have a little rethink about sort of how they approach it going forward. Because there's still a lot of good players in there that will stay and will help them on their journey. But they maybe they maybe have to sell another one or two, get that money in, and reinvest it. And that's absolutely fine. Yeah, I was going to say that money that they could definitely charge for Tielemans, they'll probably get a decent wedge in there, and you can definitely spend it elsewhere. I think they've bought yeah, they've bought really smart as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right, from one Belgium to another though, and uh, Aiden Hazard is reportedly not only looking for a way to regain his footballing prowess, seems to be at a physical impasse with Real Madrid. There was um, a Belgian journalist, Sasha Tavolieri who said that while the medical staff recommend a new operation, Florentino Perez insists on avoiding it because he wants to play him to then go ahead and sell him. It sounds very, very complicated, and I feel like Eden Hazard's the only one who's not being listened to in this whole conversation. It's like your parents arguing over your head. Um, where do you see him moving to next, Lewis? I mean, who would even take him on at this point? That's that's the question, isn't it? Um like it's going to be a step down from Real Madrid, definitely. It's not going to be a team that's competing for the Champions League. It's probably not even going to be a team that's in the Champions League after all the injuries he's had the last mm. few years. That like I think the best he could hope for possibly is like this sort of Coutinho-like move. Um, you know, maybe maybe Everton. Why not Everton? Um, <laughs> I d- yeah, I, I find it really difficult to picture where his next move will be where his next club will be in terms of money Premier League's the only league where he's going to get any sort of money like he gets at Real Madrid yeah because um, you know PSG and Bayern and, and clubs like that just aren't going to be aren't going to be interested I could see 
Yeah, I, I mean, Newcastle are the obvious ones to throw a load of money at him. I'm going to throw it out there. Lorenzo Insigne is leaving Napoli, and I would love to see Eden Hazard take his place on the left wing there. And I think Serie A um, could be great for him as well and his, his injury problems. And we've seen how many sort of players get into their late 30s and still manage to play in that league. So if I could choose for him, I'd probably pick Napoli out. That is not a bad shout. That is not a bad shout at all. Uh, right. That is that from the transfer bits. And we move on finally to our question of the week. Uh, Joel, you're actually with us last week. So we'll see your answer and Lewis's as well. Lewis, we were talking about the FA Cup last week. And the question was, who has scored the most FA Cup final goals? Do you have a guess? Drogba? Drogba, what about you, Joel? Yeah, my answer was going to be Drogba as well, actually. So this the clue I gave was... There's a difference between the most goals in FA Cup finals and the most FA Cup finals scored in. So Drogba is not right. Drogba has scored four goals in four different finals, making him the most scored, most FA Cup finals scored in. But the most goals is Ian Rush, who's got five goals in only three cup finals. I should have known that. You should have known that. <laughs> Disappointing from you. Um, but finally then, the uh, the question from this week, actually talking about strikers, talking about the relegation battle earlier, is which one striker would you rely on, past or present, to get your team out of a relegation scrap? We can open up the floor here, see what you guys think. I mean, obviously, don't go picking Cristiano Ronaldo or something ridiculous <laughs> like that. We need someone We need someone with experience at the lower reaches of the table. I, I was going to say, it's kind of like if you could just sort of say Drogba again. Yeah, yeah, just magic, magic someone <laughs> in. By the way, is the, is the, like in that bracket of big strikers, is the one that I can most picture keeping a team up in a relegation scrap if that's fair like obviously yeah. you can't see like Thierry Henry and Harry Kane and Lewis yeah Spires, maybe I not kind of see Drogba playing for Burnley <laughs> scoring 10 goals. The, the, the front two of Drogba and Carroll is something the world needs <laughs> <laughs> make it happen Sean Dyche if you're can listening I, can I go with um, I'm going to cheat a little bit because most of his career wasn't spent mm. uh, in that but like he exploded in England it's Carlos Tevez. Like he exploded. Mm. He, he went all the way, I think, to April not scoring in that season. He was at West Ham and then just ran away with it when they were, were almost guaranteed to get relegated um, and, and kept them up, much to the dismay of that. That was the, the, the final game of the season away at United, wasn't oh, it? Trafford, when yeah. he scored. I think that there was a free kick against Spurs at Upton Park. That was the Spurs first. Won. I think that was his yeah, first goal. Spurs won 4 3. Yeah. Wasn't it? Um, and and yeah, like he hadn't scored the entire season. And then he scored that goal, and it was like he just burst to life. And I don't know, he must have scored six, seven goals in the last sort of. I believe nine, it was seven in nine, if, if yeah, memory serves and, me right. And he was just, and obviously got it, earned him a move to Man United. That that run of form, and he was just absolutely brilliant. I I, I loved that because it was like. There was so much excitement when he joined West Ham, but he was obviously so young. And we all thought that we were going to see this sort of Carlos Tevez, this kid, this big star mm. who's going to play for the Argentinian national team. And then it was only the last sort of 10 games of the season where we actually saw what we all thought we were going to see all season. And it happened to keep them in the league. Um, so I, I don't know. I think if I had to pick out one striker who's gone on a run and kept a team up, 
um, then that would be like the one. That is a great that answer. That is fantastic. What about you, Joel? Yeah, it's a good answer. I I will go presence and I'll, I'll look at the teams down the bottom now and look at pick one of my strikers that I think will keep them up. And I'll say he's quite topical, but I think Newcastle signing Chris Wood might be the difference. Oh. He's someone who scored. Reached double figures, or at least double figures in four of the you know, last four seasons consecutively. Maybe not had a good season this year, but Burnley hadn't. Um, I think he's, you know, he knows where the onion bag is. I think he might find it for, for the Magpies. I like that answer as well. And I was thinking this the other day, because he's got three goals this season. And if you think that he gets at least double figures, that's another seven. And another seven Still goals wrong. for Newcastle now. Yeah. He's due a bit for run. My, my answer would be now free agent at age 39, Jermaine Defoe. <laughs> He's just left Rangers. He certainly knows where the goal is. Um, remember, he was making Sunderland look half decent for quite a while. Yeah, um, that's true. So I think they could do no worse. Anyway. If, we, if we're going with old, let's yeah. grab Kevin Phillips out of it. Uh, you know, that was my <laughs> other one. As soon as I thought of Defoe, I thought Kevin Phillips... And then my mind went even further back to when Birmingham signed Christophe Dugarry oh. for the second half of the season in 2002, <laughs> I believe, and he scored quite a few goals and kept them up. Now, so, we're, getting there we go. now, we're, now we're getting old school. Fuck it, Bolton and Nicholas and Elke, so I've got Nicholas and Elke. That is a very good shout as well. Yeah, that, was, that was like a restarting of his career too. Yeah, that's it. Every, every time against Arsenal, wasn't it, Lewis? It was in Elke every time. Yeah, Right, you can also tweet your answer as well um, to all the listeners out there. You can either get at me at, at Matt underscore Froelich or at OneFootball um, or drop us an email with your guests and any other questions, suggestions or feedback you may have. The address is podcast at OneFootball.com. So that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests as always. I hope you've enjoyed listening and we'll be back again next week. So see you then. <laughs>